Hello, I'm Pete Raby, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. With me today is Darius Quartz, the co-founder of Bro Capital, and having been named as a financial prodigy by the New York Times, Darius is on a mission to break down systemic barriers to financial health that people have long faced. Today, we're going to talk about how banks are failing African-Americans and the importance of inspiring young entrepreneurs. Darius, thanks so much for joining me today. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I think for a bit of context and a bit of history, how would you describe the journey that's got you to where you are today? The journey that has gotten me to where I am today has been one of loops, twists and turns. It's been one of excitement. It's been one of passion. It's been one of fire. I was born on the south side of Chicago in the Robert Taylor Project Homes. Quick background on the Robert Taylor Project Homes. They existed up until around 2005 on the south side of Chicago. They count as sort of a case study in the public policy environment and the public policy world of what not to do when building public housing for people. If you go back in the history, um, sort of I was birthed during a time of extreme crime, extreme violence within the Robert Taylor Project homes in that section of the South Side of Chicago. And that showed up at my front door, at my family's front door. My father was unfortunately killed at the age of four for me. And I was taken away from my mother at the age of five. I entered foster care immediately thereafter. And I went on to stay in foster care for the entirety of my childhood. So I lived in about four different foster homes, various settings. I had the opportunity to live with family. I had the opportunity to live with strangers. Um, And then in my final two years of high school, I actually transitioned to sort of the ultimate test in my foster care experience, which was I was living on my own. I advocated in the Illinois, state of Illinois courts to be able to be provided housing at the age of 16 in a way what they call it independent living. Essentially, the state will provide you a very small amount of funds and shelter as a means to allow you to begin prepping your life for adulthood. Usually you would have to be the age of 18 in order to get access to that. I had to file an appeal in order to fight for the right to do that at the age of 16. I ended up winning the appeal after the second time of filing. And that was an amazing experience to be able to walk into this extremely empty space, which would be my apartment for the next two years. And it was sort of my introduction into, in a lot of ways, that was sort of the biggest accelerator of my life in terms of leadership, because at that point it was time to lead my own journey, lead my own path of just sort of being my own parent sort of at that time. And that was both an extreme challenge, obviously, in ways that I think it might be easy to fill in the blanks. But at the same time, it was very much so what I wanted because up until that point, I had really been at the mercy of the majority of the adults around me who never really sat me down at any point in time and just asked me, what is it that you want? We know that you've been put in a very unfortunate situation. You've lost your father, your mother, you know, has been in and out of your life, but but for the majority has been absent. What do you need or what is it that you want? As opposed to asking me that and sort of 
allowing me to at least have some ability to guide. It was more so just assumptions and sort of adults doing what I think they do best, which is trying their best to protect, trying their best to show up for me. So showing a grand level of appreciation to all of those who took care of me and just provided protection over me. But what I really needed was someone who was going to empower me and just put me in position to say, what is it that you're trying to go after in your life? Particularly now that you're a teenager and you have a much clearer sense of what you think you might want for yourself. And so just being in that environment of both going to high school at the same time and sort of having to take care of myself and fend for myself, that at least put me in a position of decision-making. And it was tremendous. It took off. I went from a 3.2 GPA when I entered that apartment alone to graduating with a 4.2 GPA in high school. I was a student athlete. I was student council president. And it was all these different amazing things that sort of coalesced and allowed me to win over a million dollars in scholarships for my higher education before I graduated high school. I got accepted to over 20 plus colleges, majority of them with full rise scholarships attached. And I never looked back. I made the decision. I I found the college that was right for me, Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, within the United States. And I knew that was the institution for me. And I was literally dropped off by, at that time, my mentor, um, who's now my adoptive father, legal father. And yeah, literally, I never looked back. And, And so looking back on all of that, we get to sort of where I am today. And that really is a big chunk of sort of where my beginnings come from and what has made me who I am today. So, I mean, first of all, yeah, there's been a lot of conversations the last 18 months and that's a, that's a, that's a pretty unique and um, eye opening account of how life was in the early years, Darius. And to all of a sudden get your own place and go, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to win. I'm going to want to create something big for myself is, is, that's pretty unique in itself. But the bit I'm always fascinated by is how do you go from, that mindset and having the option of all these colleges to what you've ended up doing, because I'm a firm believer that you've got to apply yourself in stuff that you enjoy and that you're passionate about. Um, Absolutely. What, what, why was the field that you've ended up going into in this, in this finance industry? And let's be honest, there can't be too many stories of people that have come from those beginnings to making the impact that you've had within this space. So out of all the areas that you could have gone into, Darius, why was it that, that you, you were like, right, here we go. This is what it's going to be. Well, and and even that has been a very fascinating journey. I never envisioned myself being within finance. And to a degree, I sort of, it was my life experience that really even led me to this. And majority of that being like life experience after college. So I originally wanted to be a physician. And I for sure thought if you would have talked to me at 16 years old, you would have fully been convinced that, okay, he's going to go on and be an amazing doctor. If you would have talked to me during my college years, you for the majority of the time, you would have thought, okay, he's very much so on track to become a great scientist and a great doctor as well. It wasn't until my junior year, senior year, that I had an opportunity to do some personal development. I had traveled the world at that time. I had been to five continents, 21 countries during my college experience. That was just culturally groundbreaking for me. It got me outside of the box that I was in the bubble that I was certainly in, having not really traveled too far outside of Chicago and 
not too far outside of the Chicago for the majority of my years. So to see so many different cultures, see so many different people, ways of living, it challenged me in a number of different ways to just think about what do I want for myself? And as I was thinking about moving towards graduation in college, I had some time to reflect and had some time to just be to myself and be introspective. And I I had to ask myself, is this what I want? Is being a doctor what I want? Why? What were my motivations for this in the first place? And when I did that reflection, I saw that if I would have went on to go to medical school and dedicate my life to that, I would have found some level of passion in it, obviously, but I wouldn't have been doing it for me. I really would have been doing it for other people. I never received a negative reaction from anyone in my life, even as a very young child. Anytime someone asks me, what do you want to be when you grow up? Just that lovely and sort of joyous question. Every time I responded, I want to be a doctor. People gave me positive feedback, right? It was a it was a loop where that kind of that did something for my spirit, for my soul to receive that reaction from an, an adult to just say, I want to be a doctor and their eyes glow up and they want to talk to you more and they want to encourage you and pinch your cheeks. I didn't understand at the time that that was doing something for me. But as I reflected back on it, I always loved science. I was very studious in a number of different ways. And I thought that added up to it. Well, if I like science, I'm studious, that means I need to be a doctor. And if so many people have encouraged me and I've received this support every time I say I want to be a doctor, you know, why, why not continue along that path? But that wouldn't have been for me. Right. And so that was a sort of a major decision in my life because I had invested a lot of time, energy and money up until that point into this vision of I'm going to go on and be a doctor. So even making that pivot was huge. There was a few people around me in my life at that time who did not understand the decision and to a degree actually kind of pushed me to think harder about it and say, is this are you really going to like pivot away from being a doctor, the thing you've been putting all this work and effort into? And I said, well, I'd much rather make this decision early on than to be in the middle of medical school and realize that I don't want to do this. I'd much rather make this decision now than to go to medical school, graduate, be in the world with debt, and then make that decision to pivot. So made the decision to say, I have a business that's already thriving, that's already growing. Wrote a book while I was in college, published that book, and it started selling like bananas. And so that became a bestseller within the education category, um, built a business model around that. And I was only a junior in college when I started that work. By the time senior year rolled around, it was something where I saw true viability in it. And I also saw a, a huge societal problem, which was the mounting student debt problem, particularly within the United States of America and particularly for students who come from backgrounds like my own, where you're coming from very humble beginnings. Right. Money is tight. You've grown up in poverty. What are the pathways to financing a higher education? It's very limited. And what I saw is that, you know, scholarships and grants are a viable way to do that. But the problem is we're not preparing low income students and universally often we're not preparing students from all economic backgrounds to really know how they can pay for college through you know means that isn't debt. And so I wanted to be a part of the vanguard that tried to change that. And Million Dollar Scholar, my, my very first company, 
was an opportunity to do that. And so that that brought passion out of me. That brought my lived experience into the work. It brought sort of a broader vision, a, a big question of how do we solve this student debt problem? How do we help prepare more students coming out of primary school to be prepared for what they need financially for higher education? And I just knew that that was it. I didn't have to ask myself too many more questions of like, I don't necessarily know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to take the plunge into the deep end <laughs> and I'm going to become an entrepreneur right out of college. So May 2013, graduated. Barack Obama was the commencement speaker at our ceremony. And like hearing his voice, hearing his charge, that was also additional validation and confirmation that I'm about to go out into the world and do exactly what I'm meant to do in the world, which is like be me, be myself um, and be authentic to like my story. And I did just that. Darius, I think that's awesome. I was actually going to ask you a question in relation to uh, have there been any kind of leadership role models that you've looked up to and taken some lessons from over the years? I'm a, I'm a huge studier of, um, of great oratory. And obviously you mentioned President Obama. It doesn't get right. too many people that have got <laughs> as, as much game when it comes to that beautiful natural rhythm that he speaks with and the way that he can hold a crowd and envelop feelings of passion as, as, as President Obama does. But one of the things, I, w- I want to ask you something before that, if I may. I recognize now, because you know, we started the business in 2008 ourselves, so we were young men in our kind of 20s as well, like trying to, trying to make way, trying to empower people and trying to grow something that can have a, as big an impact as possible. I, rec- I recognize now the fact that there are some disadvantages from starting when you're young in the sense that you don't know what you don't know. And sometimes Absolutely. times in industry, long time in industry, or just learning the ropes, expanding your network, is actually going to give you some significant long-term benefits, even though the you know being an entrepreneur and starting something new is really exciting. I guess the bit that I'd love to ask is, you know, you mentioned 2013. You're talking about some changes and impact that are not going to happen overnight. You're talking about societal class-related issues that have been hundreds of years in the making and that are going to take probably decades to change you might say actually pete that's where you're wrong like you know oh, we can we can change things now i'd love to know at 2013 did you have a long-term grandiose thought in relation to how success would be monitored and over what kind of time period or did you just throw yourself in and say let's see how we get on i'd be fascinated by the thought process absolutely so when it came to the problem around sort of mounting student debt and what i also observed within particularly inner city environments that that I'm from. So I graduated at a, on a high at a high school on the south side of Chicago as well. And th- what they did uniquely was they were an empowering school. Like culturally, they really believed in the students. They really preached a culture of, you know, we want you to go on and live an amazing life no matter what it is you do, whether that's you go on to higher education or not. We're here to prepare you for an amazing life and for the majority of you, the best way for us to facilitate that for you is to give you the opportunity to at least be able to compete for higher education. And so it was a culture, a college going culture is what they called it. So we knew that, you know, look, we we want to help you get to college if that's what you want for yourself. And it was something that I wanted for myself. And it was very deep for me because I was the very first in my family to go on to college. And so I knew that if I'm the first to go, I also have the opportunity to be the first to graduate. 
And so that was big motivation um, for me. And as I sort of sit back and reflect on that, I think a lot of that is related to why I wanted to solve these big audacious problems. It's like I sort of saw my life as one where it's like I haven't lived the type of life where I will go off and try to solve small ones. Right. I've I've been through too much. I've seen too much to not dedicate myself to something a that's bigger than myself and bigger than just how do I enrich myself? How do I get it for me? I watched my brother go through foster care as well, who was five years older than me. And I mean, I, I saw how deeply challenging it was for him. I looked around at my family and I saw how many challenges my family actually went through going through poverty experiencing really just sort of many of the social ills that come when you're in an environment like that. So yeah, I wanted to dedicate myself to something to where it's like when I look back on my life, when I look back on my legacy, it feels like I dedicated myself to something that was connected to purpose and connected to sort of my own life experience. And I felt that entrepreneurship was one pathway, not the only pathway, but one pathway where I could at least kind of frame it for myself because I didn't see too many other businesses out there trying to solve this issue. And so that in and of itself was an indicator that I might be, I might have something special here. And I did start with the larger problem. Like I started with the vision. The vision was the first thing. And then I think interrelated with that was the, the lived experience that I brought. It wasn't a guarantee that I was going to go on to college Unless mentors, unless people came around me and guided me and showed me that this is a viable pathway for you, Darius, you have the potential. You have what it takes to make this happen for yourself. And so if finance is going to be one of the things that holds you back from that, let's connect you to the resources that you need to make it happen. I don't want you to get discouraged or have apathy. There were resources that helped me get to higher education. And so I know there is resources out there for you. And there were mentors who told me that and they didn't give me the playbook and they didn't do the work for me to be very clear about that. But what they did do was they lit a fire under me to know that it's it's possible. And so don't get discouraged by the idea that, wow, fifty thousand dollars a year, that's going to be like two hundred thousand dollars for a degree for a 17 year old to see those types of numbers. That can be so daunting that you see it once and you never even think about it again. You just, it's not possible. I'm going to have to figure something else out. And what they told me was that don't let that discourage you. Like you can make it happen here and we we're going to give you the high level how, and then you'll have to figure out the rest. And so that was really my challenge is to kind of like figure out the rest. And I think it was the same with, with business started with the vision. And then the challenge is how do you go about executing on that vision? And I think still to this day, I'm just growing, learning more and more every day, every week, month about how do you go about executing on a grand vision? Where do you start? Yeah, absolutely. I've had way too many good, knowledgeable people from the business community say you've got to work out where you want to be and work back from it, right? Like right. It, might, it might take 5, 10, 15, 20 years. There's plenty of businesses that are doing extremely well now that took 20, 25 years to get, to get going, to get the level of impact right. they wanted yeah. to. Do, do, do you have some fixed things that like, you know, what would good look like? What would success look like in relation to the amount that you want to impact? Is it about the amount of young people you want to impact? Is it about the percentage breakdown of 
who's going to college in the first place? What, what are those key things that you're actually looking and judging and measuring long term? Yes. So for Million Dollar Scholar, what we looked at sort of in the, the founding of the company was the number of grant dollars that we actually funnel to these youth or connect these youth to. How can we sort of measure impact over time where we're actually engaging those students and seeing if this scholarship money actually went to use where they went on to graduate? Um, so those were a few of the measures. So it's like sort of the, the short term measures of how many students that we reach, how many students we touch. So sort of thinking up about sort of those are more the reach metrics. And then it's like the impact metrics. How does this go about actually impacting the educational experience or life experience of the students. So that, that those are more of the longitudinal. Of course, it takes a lot more time and it's a lot more difficult to, to gather that type of data. But those are the initial things that we thought about. And then, of course, there's the core business metrics not related to impact, revenue, clients, et cetera. And, and to be called something like a financial prodigy from a publication like the New York Times, I mean, wow, that must have... I'm fascinated to hear how that felt, but I'd also love to hear off the back of that, of what have been the most challenging business-related aspects since you started it. Because there's one thing having an idea, there's right. a whole new a whole new side of things, which is being able to create a business that has the maximum impact that you want it to. So I'd love to hear from the from the award of that kind of prestigious title, uh, Darius, to, to, to actually what the biggest learns have been since started. Absolutely. So I, th I think it's important that we started with Million Dollar Scholar because that was the very first business that I created right out of college and was deeply connected to my life experience of I wouldn't have paid for my higher education if it was not for grants and scholarship dollars. So went off into the world trying to help more students do the same thing and believe in the idea that it, it is funds out there for them. In the experience of building that business alongside my co-founder, Ross Hassan, what we found was that it was so difficult for us to raise capital. That was really the biggest challenge that we ran into was not just showing that we had a viable business model, but I think in a lot of ways we had to really try to convince folks, venture capitalists or investors that like we were investable. And I think we ran into so many walls where... I think we we literally scoured like the whole country, the United States, from coast to coast, from California to New York and so many different unique and niche places in between like looking for investors, looking for capital. And we would sometimes get a, you know, we got we got a few like acorns here and there, but it was never the type of capital that was really going to allow us to viably like scale up the enterprise in any way. and. What we had to come to the realization to once we started connecting our lived experience with the data is that, wow, we're ha we're having a very different experience at this as young black men than our counterparts are, right? Our non-black counterparts are. And I don't think it was our job to sort of answer why that is. I think it's, it's a number of different reasons we connect to why, but we knew that that in and of itself was like a problem. And I think it started to seep into our our minds and spirits where we we just began to ask ourselves like is is it us is it something we're doing what what is not connecting here for us to be able to at least get a small amount of capital that's going to allow us to scale up 
we we were really not at a point where we were seeking out millions of dollars. We were really seeking a small seed capital investment from some folks who really like believed in us and were willing to like invest in us both from the business standpoint, but as people as well. And that proved extremely difficult. And so we we had to go back to the drawing board and ask ourselves, what's going on here? Why are black entrepreneurs only raising one percent? We represent 15 percent of the United States population, but we're only raising one percent of the venture capital raised per year, right, annually within the United States. You know, that that's that should make anybody upset who hears that number. I think there are certain folks within our world who are upset about that figure and understand that there are so many nuances behind that figure that lead to that outcome. But I don't think there are enough people who are literally like on fire to try to go about solving that issue. And so myself and Ross at the time, we were on fire. We were like, wow, we're seeing this affect our lives in real time. But we don't have the power to just snap our finger and change it. Like, where could we start? What could we do to like begin impacting this issue? And what really started as like an idea on kind of a, a sheet of napkin paper actually turned out to be like, wow, this is a, a potential viable business model. And that is what would it look like if at a more grassroots level, we built a technology platform that allowed black men to pool their capital together and then make their own investments in entrepreneurs that look like them or business opportunities that were for them. And just with that sort of grand vision or like putting that out into the world, like how might we, that designer question of how might we do this led to all these different possibilities. And that led to the creation of Bro Capital, which today is the world's first technology platform that's dedicated to black men pooling their financial capital together and then managing the investment that they pooled as a means to invest in business opportunities that are for them and entrepreneurs that that look like them. And we're the first to do what we're doing and we found success in it. We've pooled over at this point six figures in investment capital starting just with three co-founders who pulled $500 together and said, we're going to start with $500 and build from there. We haven't taken any outside capital. And now we're at a point where we don't plan to take any venture capital, um, but rather to continue to own it 100% with the 19 different co-owners that we have, inclusive of myself. And it's been an amazing journey and ride going on six years now. So last year we celebrated our, our five-year anniversary. I mean, the thing that kept jumping out to me that there is, is that when's the book coming? <laughs> well, my first book was written in 2011, and the second one needs to be on the way sometime soon. I think I'm just saying, like, you've got you, you you've got like a guy here ready to buy this book. I tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm ready, and I, I, I know a lot of people that are friends of mine that would be very keen to read it because I think that. The raising of money, the expansion of business is something that so many people are interested to hear about. And hearing that unique angle, the challenges, the 1% fact, and like what you've learned about that, I mean, people need to know. People need to know that. I think you could give a you could give a copy of it to every business graduate in every college in the whole of America. <laughs> and I think people would be really interested to get stuck into that as part of a syllabus. So from my angle, it feels like a crime that won't be done at some point. So I'm sure your diary is a pretty packed one, but um, I'm, I'm looking forward already to, to reading about that whenever you get it done. I definitely appreciate <laughs> the call to action. Definitely.
Let's talk about the learns then, because as you say, there's a whole difference between idea, this is what we want to impact, and actually impacting it through good business decisions. What have been one or two of your biggest learns since starting Bro kind of six years ago? The majority of the businesses that I've started, and I've started four at this point, have been co-founding, a co-founding environment. And I found so much value in sort of the relationships that I've built from that co-founding to where I still think it's the ideal way to build businesses. And I've, I've had the experience of doing it solo and doing it on my own. And there are some benefits that come to it. And I very much so love the experience of co-founding, love the experience of being on a team right out of the gate, being able to synergize with people. Um, so anytime I have the opportunity to go into schools and speak to young folks in particular, I preach the meshes of like, who's going to be on your team, right? For whatever vision that you have for yourself, for your life, who are you going to do that alongside? How, how do you turn this from a solo project into, okay, this is who I'm going to bring in to be a part of that core team. Love it. And uh, I couldn't agree more. I think the thing that if you're lucky that you managed to get, and then some of these things take a few years to work out. But if you somehow manage to get a blend of personalities, a blend of skills, then you can really attack things together. And just on that earlier point, especially for startup businesses where you've got a lot of passion for something, I think the, one of the hardest things is to make sure that you're all learning and upskilling as leaders as a collective, because the bigger something is, the more impact that it has. And that's what I kind of talk about a lot within our business. This growth isn't just for growth's sake. This is the fact that the bigger we are, the more successful we are, the more ability we have to impact internally, externally, society, and everything else in between, right? The, the, the other thing that I was fascinated to, to ask about was, you know, you talked there about a couple of things. Co-founding could be good, but there was definitely a line that I want to ask you on, Darius, in relation to networking. Because I'll be honest, yes. even as a confident guy, and I like being in social scenarios, I think that work can be a bit dirty sometimes. It can make people think, Absolutely. ugh. Awkward chats in big halls where you're like, you're the only person stood around that everyone else is chatting and you're kind of there feeling a bit awkward and a bit like, am I going to go about this? What have been your biggest wins and your biggest kind of methods that of how you go about successful network growing? Is it like diary time once a week, once a month? How do you make sure you're actually getting a network which is broad in its personality and background based on? I'd be fascinated to hear how you go about it. Throughout my life, I think I've constantly learned the lesson of it's much better to have a few people who deeply want to help you and add value to your life than it is to have a bunch of folks around you who wish to add very little. Like I, I'm willing to add something, but like I'm only going to do the bare minimum uh, for you. It's it's the folks throughout my life. It's been the folks who really been willing to you know, make sacrifices to a degree to to see me win. And I think the only way to do that is to a degree to flip it on its head and not come from that traditional networking, sort of it, it's all about just pitching folks and selling all the time <laughs> type mindset. And more about, you know, I think what the, the name of the game is today, and many thought leaders are like preaching this message, which I appreciate it. It's about relationships, right? It's about building true, genuine, and authentic relationships. And I think one of the best ways to go about doing that is A, to be authentic, to be yourself, whatever that is, such that if that resonates with somebody, you're giving them more power to be their authentic self. And then number two 
if you can sort of approach relationships from a much more like reciprocity type standpoint, it's not just about what I can take, what I can get from this, but immediately viewing it as like, what can we do for each other? Like, what might we be able to exchange? I think that's something that I've had to practice and learn a lot more um, within the bro capital environment, right? And building business within this larger community, because what is unique about bro capital is that we have 19 co-owners and these are co-owners with decision-making power. They both own the business and help cooperate the business. And so in this cooperative environment, you have to learn how to delegate. You have to learn how to sort of build consensus. You have to learn how to really love the people, like like love. I even think that's a concept or a word that you hear rarely in business. I think a lot of people might make the argument that that's getting, you know, words like love, that's getting a little bit too deep into sort of the personal side. And that's what's, that's not what business is about. But I, I would really challenge folks to think a little bit deeper about that. Why is things like a concept like love, for instance, not talked about? Why is that so veered away from within the business concept? What would it look like for leaders to love the people that they're leading? And would it look differently? Would you make decisions differently if you actually had a level of love for the people around you versus just, I kind of like these people. I I, kind of feel like I have a good relationship and good rapport with these people. I do think it would look differently. And I know that is a, I think that's a major ask. It's like, what would it look like for leaders to love their people? Because I think it, it would require more emotion to sort of be a part of it. But like there is, I th- I th- one of the things. Uh, sorry to interrupt in there, but like one of the things that we yeah, talk please. about a lot is that they t- you see a lot of content where they talk about work and personal life, and I've said yes. for a long time, I I just see it as life, right? Like mm. it's all life. Yeah, you might have work related stuff and non work related stuff, but they both impact each other. I mean, ultimately, it's a five day working week, so the balance isn't right to begin with. You've got five working days and two non working days. It's not work-life balance. It's just life. How are you managing life to be effective? And as you say, for most people, love is at the heart of what they do and the reason that they do something because it's come from somewhere of love and of passion. And ultimately, I don't know. I don't know about what you've seen. I'd be fascinated to hear if there have been leaders that you've always taken, you know, that you've used as a role model, people that you're like, oh, God. And, And the best leaders to me always come across as super authentic and that love actually does stem from why they do everything. I'll be, have there been any leaders that over the years that, that you followed, that you've read, that you've kept close tracks on Darius that have that have kept this within you? Because it's very obvious that you feel very strongly about it. Yes, I would definitely say my adoptive father, Desmond, um, who for a long time counted as I counted as a mentor, and he came into my life. He was my first boss, right? He was a supervisor in a in a tutoring program on the South side of Chicago. And it was a connection that was made through my high school counselor introduced me to him. And this, who, who would have thought that this lifelong bond would form um, between us where he took a liking to me and I, I took a liking to him and, you know, a relationship formed from there where he was my mentor for the next few years throughout high school. But the relationship just continued to blossom, continued to grow until, you know, you look a decade and a half later and 
he's my legal dad, right? And sort of how does that uh, come about? I, I think, yeah, I've seen a tremendous amount of love rooted in the vast majority of the decisions um, that he makes. And in terms of, I am not the only mentee of his. He has dozens and dozens of mentees. And when I think about what makes it so unique and why so many of these mentees like are attracted to him and uh, magnetized towards his way is that, wow, he really does lead with love. He shows up with love. And you can feel that in his work and you can feel that in his approach to even if he's delivering the most stern critique or whatever, you know that it's coming from an amazing, great place where this is a person who wants the best for me. And so he's an individual that I would count as someone who's led with love and why I would sort of challenge, why isn't that something that kind of shows up in the the literature a little bit more? Why, why is mm. that something that's sort of talked about within the zeitgeist of how we advance business globally? I think one of the reasons why we avoid it is that you know, outside of the insecurities that many of us have, is that we wouldn't be able to make some of the decisions that we make if we did lead with love. It's like, I think that's sort of the challenge and the problem is that we would have to do business a whole lot differently um, than how we do um, today. Sounds uh, sounds like a potential revolution there, Darius. I like it. Uh, that is a <laughs> That's got some big, wide sweeping potential right there. And also, Absolutely. you're going to hate me by saying this, but it sounds like another book, right? Right. <laughs> um, and the final thing I want to get on, uh, ask you about before we get on to the quick fire final three is how can real and impactful change happen from the people, the CEOs, the founders of businesses? How can they actually make sure that you know diversity and having people from all walks of life actually gets, uh, you know, is, is, is a reality in organizations rather than just a wish list. Right. One of the things that I've observed consistently um, within my experience, because outside of entrepreneurship, I've also had the opportunity to give my talents to the private sector. I've worked in government. I've worked in nonprofits. So I've seen it from all different angles. It just hasn't been, you know, a 12 years, decade plus of just entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship. So wanted to give that context because sort of I'm bringing in my lived experience from all these different environments. And one of the things that I've observed is that diversity is often a desirable thing. It's like we we want diversity, but it's wanted for diversity's sake. It's not wanted from a standpoint of like, what is the true value that diversity and then broadening that to equity? Like, what does that bring to your your organization or what does that bring to the environment if you don't empower the diversity that that comes in then we have to bring it to a dialogue of like equity then we have to bring it from from equity you might even broaden it to sort of empower right like what what does it look like for the diverse folks at our organization at our company to actually be empowered to challenge us to get better in certain areas. I've, I've found it more in my experience that you bring in diversity and then when that diversity starts to challenge the entity, right? Ch challenge the power structure of how do we get better? These are the things that I've observed and like, this is what makes it challenging for me here. How do we, how do we get better at that? Folks are insecure 
right? They take that as a either a personal slight or they take that as you don't have the authority or you don't have the title threat to threat right that gives you the ability to make that observation or to issue that challenge. And so really I would challenge senior leaders in particular to like outside of the titles that folks have, right? Like try to take the merits of the ideas that are brought to the table separate from who brought them to the table. So a little less about who the messenger is and really try to take the message. Like, are there ways that our organization can get better at recruiting? Are there ways our organization can get better at training, right? Talent when it comes in, opportunities for growth within our entity once that talent is is dedicated and has given great things to our entity. Like where, what are the pathways to grow within the organization? What are the pathways to um, build additional skills? Those are some of the things that I um, would challenge is right now across a few different metrics, we're not doing a great job at that globally. People of color are experiencing tremendous challenges, even within organizations that espouse these amazing values, right? And if you look at their commercials, if you look at their websites, if you look at any of their marketing materials, it would tell you that we're a welcoming organization. We love our people. We treat them well. But then when you sort of peel back layers and you talk directly to folks about what has your experience been off the record at this this entity, at this company, and then all of these things are brought up of terrible management, not leadership, but terrible management and how challenging that can be. And so in a lot of ways, leadership literally needs to be rethought within these organizations. If not only you're going to continue to promote diversity and really be about that, but I would also say to actually continue to attract diverse talent. I think diverse Mm -hmm. talent is, is tired of the marketing materials espousing these values. But when they get into the organization, they see that you're not really about what you say you're about. If you want diverse talent and you want to retain diverse talent, what are you doing to attract that talent? What are you doing to keep that talent right on your roster? Keep that talent on your team. Those would be a few of the things that I would say. I think uh, the line that sticks out to me there, Darius, it's um, you're absolutely right. It's one thing getting people in the door, and some businesses do that okay. How are you going to empower the diversity that gets brought in and looking at it strand by strand from onboarding to cultural setup and everything else in between? How are you doing all those things and how are you doing it well? And crucially from what you said there, how are you getting feedback? Like I do a, I do a, a roundtable sit-down with a cross-section of my business on a quarterly basis, different people, some six months in, some – five years in and all the rest of it to try and make sure that on a regular basis, I'm having conversations with people that can be impactful. Right. And I think without such things in place, without getting the right feedback or even having the right feedback process in place, I think some brilliant ideas can easily get lost and not ever heard. So um, yeah, I think there's some, some absolutely great points there. And I know that uh, people will be taking a few, few questions away from that for sure, which is as always with this, always the point. And as I promised, I, I feel like I could speak to you for quite a while, Darius. So your, your, your energy is quite intoxicating. Three Thank quick you. fire questions to finish up. I think I know the answer to this one because you mentioned it a lot. 
the question is always, what have been the most effective personal methodologies that you've used to grow and develop as a leader? You've talked about mentorship. Has that been the most impactful? Is there anything else that you found uh, found to be impactful also? And in adulthood, I spoke a lot about my childhood experience. I experienced a lot of trauma within my, my childhood. So being very blunt about that, therapy, personal therapy for mm. myself has been tremendous in understanding what roadblocks mentally I might have been putting up for myself, sort of cognitive pitfalls that I might have had and ways of sort of misperceiving things. In a lot of different ways, therapy has been amazing. So I, I'm also a proponent of therapy. And it, it is, doesn't matter what your childhood experience was, whether you can point out explicit traumatic experiences you've had or not. I think it's beneficial for everyone to seek out seek that out at a professional level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was I was really interested to to hear um, whether or not there'd been a long lasting book or podcast or movie that you'd recommend that you that you can think about now, or whether it be something you've read recently or just one that's always been with you. Is there is there something you could select out of it, all of them? Yes, Paul Arden's. It's not how good you are; it's how good you want to be. It was one of the first sort of career like business books that I read back when I was, I believe. 16 years old and it it still resonates um to this day as one of those ones that I go back to but it, it definitely challenged me to just think differently about my life path my life journey at that very crucial time and sort of it's one of those ones that I just keep on the mantle nice I don't know it I'm going to check it out right. and if there's one if there's one learn that you'd want our listeners to take away in terms of leadership Darius in your experience so far what would it be the one learn that I would um, take away is that your lived experience is so important to how you show up as a leader. Make sure that you include that in your narrative. Like, Make sure that you show up not being shy about leading from that lived experience. Um, and so that could be the lived experience of your childhood background. That could be the lived experience of the um, the deep career experience that you have. It could be the skill sets that you have, et cetera. But whatever that is for you, make sure that you're showing up with your lived experience and that you're leading from that. Great advice. And Darius, thank you for so much for coming on and sharing your journey and your leadership learns with us today. I'm sure that there'll be loads that's resonated with the listeners and like me, without a doubt, we're taking away some valuable ideas as well. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network. Darius, great to meet you and thanks for coming on again. Thank you so much, Peter. Really appreciate it.